inside the confines of a standardized curriculum box to a teaching and learning space that is more creative? And how can you make this leap in your teaching practice in an easy and more systematic way that doesn't create more work for yourself during planning sessions? This is what I'm hoping to accomplish with Get Off the Dotted Line, a podcast that gives elementary teachers simple step-by-step tools, guidance, and advice on how to make teaching more creative without sacrificing high-quality content, instruction, skills, and amazing learning potential for your students. I'm your host, Dr. Paige Hendricks, and together we will explore different ways to simplify your planning and add a lot of creative impact that is outside the confines of standardized curriculum and the dotted lines. Have you ever heard of the IES or the WWC? There are so many different acronyms in the field of education, but I wanted to bring two of them to your attention today, particularly in the area of mathematics. But these resources that I'm about to give you, even though they're specific to mathematics, could probably be modified to the other subject areas as well. So by the end of this episode, I promise you will know what IES and WWC mean, how to access them, what types of information you can get from them, and some real tips for teaching math in your elementary classroom. And stay tuned for the Cut That Out section of this podcast, where I'll give you access to a handout so you can remember the topics we talked about and use them right away. Whether you consider yourself a creative teacher or not, or just need a spark to re-energize your classroom atmosphere tomorrow, this episode will help you confidently engage your students and create an atmosphere for high-quality content, instruction, and amazing learning potential to begin. I hope you're still listening and not groaning about yet another acronym in education that gets thrown out there and that you have to remember. These, I promise you, will be helpful for you and they'll be great for your back pocket. But I will caution you that they both include a clearinghouse of data and information, which means they're super, super big. So I'm also going to give you direct links in the show notes to make your attention go to smaller pieces so you don't get overwhelmed or lost. There are two things, though, that I must discuss before we get started, since we're talking about data and big clearinghouses of data. First, my pet peeve, one, datum, many, data. Yes, the term data is actually plural, so please use it appropriately. And second, data should always be read and interpreted with caution. Please do not, under any circumstances, take the IES and the WWC data at face value. You should never take any data, for that matter, at face value. You must also, after you read about data collected, probe deeper, ask more questions, and draw your own conclusions, as you'll hear me do the same in this podcast Also note that reading and interpreting data with caution doesn't mean the same thing as bad data and that it should be ignored. It just means that there's more that meets the eye. And with data, there's always more that meets the eye. So now that we have those two things out of the way, let's get started with those acronyms. IES stands for Institute of Education Sciences, and it's part of the U.S. Department of Education. 
IES was established by the Education Sciences Reform Act of 2002, and its mission is to expand knowledge and provide information on the condition of education, practices that improve academic achievement, and the effectiveness of federal and other education programs. The website directly for IES is ies.ed.gov, and I've provided a direct link to it in the show notes. There's also a short video on that first page of their website on how the IES works and what it does, so I highly recommend. It's really short, so no problem at all. The IES, just for your information, is divided into four parts, the NCER, the NCES, the NCSER, and the NCEE which stands for the National Center for Education Evaluation and Regional Assistance. I'm only mentioning this acronym by full name because it's the only one that we care about for the moment, but I just wanted you to know that the IES is divided into four parts. We're just going to talk about one, and very small piece of one, by the way. WWC stands for What Works Clearinghouse, and this one you actually might have heard of or it might have just been thrown out, so now you know exactly what it stands for. This is a database of research tips and other resources, and it also tells what the WWC is all about. The WWC is part of the NCEE, and the purpose and mission of the WWC is to be a central and trusted source of scientific evidence for what works in education. Their website says that they review the research, determine which studies meet rigorous standards, summarize the findings, and disseminate them to the educational community. The WWC team includes 300 people from six different organizations, including the Institute for Education Sciences, or the IES, research organizations, and universities. So the WWC and the IES are definitely connected, which is why we're talking about them together today. The website and the more direct link for the WWC is super long and confusing, so I recommend getting it from the show notes where I have the link right in there. And there's also a handout made by the WWC about what they are in specific, and it's only one page. So if you're curious, that's a good handout to have. Now that we've gotten those acronyms out of the way, let's get to the good part and the information the WWC can give to you about actually teaching math in your class. One section of the WWC is called Resources for Educators, and after moving around that part of the website, I landed upon some resources, including videos and handouts about teaching math in elementary school. Let me help you get to the right source, and there's another link here in the show notes specifically for math, and there's also a link to a specific resource that I'm going to be talking about today in this podcast called Five Evidence-Based Recommendations for Teaching Mathematics, and it's specifically for elementary teachers, and it's in PDF form, so the direct link is here, but like I said, I'm going to go through and review and talk about all five of the recommendations there in a bit more detail. Before I get there, though, I have to say this as a good researcher, the five recommendations that are in the handout that I just mentioned were deemed by the WWC as moderate at best. Now, hold on. At face value, this does not sound promising at all. Like, why would we even waste our time talking about things that just might maybe work for some kids? Okay. But remember the caution I mentioned at the beginning of the podcast? Moderate or less means that many things to a person in research and in the 
research fields. And the WWC does a really good job about making clear that this level means there could be some things wrong with the actual data that they collected or that was collected and that they reviewed. And maybe the data reports were incomplete in some way, or the data itself was comparing slightly different things like apples to bananas, both fruits, but not quite the same. So they're talking about here that you should, as I mentioned, take your data with caution. And the five recommendations are really sound. And in fact, I've even spoken about many of these recommendations in previous podcasts, or you even may already be doing some of these things in your classroom right now. So listen up and it'll be worth it, I promise. But I wanted to be clear and transparent about what we're about to discuss and as a researcher myself. So here we go. Recommendation number one, teach number and operations using a developmental progression. The WWC recommends that before teaching addition or subtraction, children should have some number sense. We know this. This is good practice, right? In other words, teachers should provide children ample opportunities to subitize or identify the number of things in a set by quickly looking at them. So not by counting them one by one, but looking at a pair of something and understanding that a pair is two things, or looking at a quad or a four pack of something, or looking at a six pack of something, not by counting it, but by looking at it and saying, that's four, that's six. Students should also practice then counting things individually and comparing the magnitude or the size of the collections of the objects. And then finally, using numbers to quantify those collections. So you take students from just looking at the group of objects to counting them, to comparing them, and so on and so on and so on. So I highly recommend that you get busy counting and collecting and 10 framing eventually or grouping everything that you see in your classroom, outside of your classroom, in the hallways of the school, on the school grounds, wherever you see stuff, which is omnipresent and pretty much everywhere in a school or school system, and start counting and grouping. Recommendation number two, teach geometry, patterns, measurement, and data analysis using a developmental progression. This recommendation is all about teaching students to know and describe basic shapes and compare them with others of the same. For instance, a small square can be compared to a large square because they're both squares or uh, comparing other shapes like the difference between a square, which has four sides, and a triangle, for example, which has three sides. Young children should also be able to identify and create patterns like the AB pattern or the ABA pattern or even the ABBA pattern or any other pattern that you want to make up or they make up and make direct comparisons using measurement tools like their own hands and feet, as well as rulers. And finally, young children should be able to collect and organize the information they're learning about in math class. So get out that grid paper or put a grid like something on your smart board or your whiteboard, some crayons, some markers, and get busy graphing and drawing math data. Recommendation three, use progress monitoring to ensure that math instruction builds on what each child knows. I spoke at length about this recommendation in the previous episode, episode 25, but in the context of how you would teach math. And so here, you're using all your tricks to monitor and understand what each child knows about math topics, and you're doing this every day, often. 
Then you're using this information about children's skills to slightly tailor your instruction, and you're matching the pedagogy, like how you teach something, with the content, what topics you're teaching. I might have mentioned this tip before, but one of my mentors instructed me to carry around a small uh, bound notebook. You know, those little kinds that you get at the dollar store, they're like a couple inches by a couple inches, and a small mini pencil, like the pencils that you get at... um goofy golf places or miniature golf places, or even a small nub of a pencil that you find that a student has sharpened almost into oblivion. And you want to take that small notebook and that small pencil and select three to four students that you monitor for a whole week. Or the way I did it, I couldn't last a whole week, honestly, was uh, three days, two to three days. And with these three to four students that you've selected in your head, you don't have to say this out loud to anybody. You just do it in your own head. You write down the student's name on the top of one of those little sheets of paper in the notebook and you write the date, today's date, and you write small notes throughout the day about how that student is doing in the different content areas, like how they're doing in language arts or how they're doing in math or science. Maybe some behavioral things. Maybe they were student of the week that week. Maybe something positive. You know, they made a new friend today or they paired up with so-and-so and it was a great pairing. Whatever you think is awesome and great or of concern or challenge, whatever, all of it. And after the two to three days or the week, if you can stand it, you take these pages and you rip them out and you make sure the date is on them. And you take a piece of tape and tape them into a manila folder with the child's name on it. And you have a folder like this for each of your children in your classroom. And if you do this continually, you select two to three students for two to three days apiece, you have the biggest mountain of information of of your students when it comes time to do parent-teacher conferences or when it comes time to write report cards or give information for a specialist or anything. You just have a ton of information for yourself so that you know where these children are academically and behaviorally and every other way that you've collected data. So I used to start this process a couple weeks after school began. And so by October parent conferences, my parents were well informed with what their children were doing in class because I had done this maybe two times for each child, sometimes even three times for each child by that point. And so I had all this information and it's super easy and it's super low stress for you. And make sure your all your teacher clothing has pockets so you can put this little notebook or put it in your badge pocket, wherever you can keep it. But it's a great tool to make sure you understand what your children know academically and where they are. Recommendation number four, teach children to view and describe their world mathematically. So when I read over the language that was used by the IES in their handout to describe this one, I had some real concerns and it wasn't very clear. So I wanted to take the opportunity to explain this one in my own language and help you see what this recommendation looks like in real time. Teaching mathematics isn't just about making sure your students know how to do the math. It's also about making sure that they know and can use successfully the language of mathematics. So for example, students must understand that the term addition means to add two or more numbers or amounts together. But We'd be silly to think that four or five or even sometimes some six-year-olds would understand that concept of addition and use that term appropriately 
If we don't first start with using addition words that are more commonly used to describe what addition means, to describe it in their terms, like use their language. So for example, when we teach young children about addition, we often start with the words like more or the word and, like in this example here, Judy has three stickers and her sister gave her four more for her birthday. So then you ask the students, how many more stickers does Judy have now? Or you can put it another way. Judy has three stickers and now she has four more. How many stickers does Judy have? And after a while, when you use these other words for these mathematical terms, the students begin to understand that more or together or whatever terms you're using and means the term addition in mathematical language. And then we add in not only the term addition to the process, but we add in that symbol, the plus symbol. And we show the students that when you put things together, it's called addition, and this is the symbol for it. And then they understand all the different steps of that of getting to the real mathematical language, which the term addition is something that they're going to hear from now until, well, the end of their academic career. And we only get to this last step through this gradual, consistent practice of allowing students to talk through math together and use the terms right back at them that they use when they're talking about math with you. Still stuck on this one or don't know what to ask students to further solidify math connections? Okay, here's a great resource. I've included a link from the WWC to explain it more completely. And they actually give you some questions directly you can snag to ask your students. Recommendation number five, deliberately dedicate time each day to teaching math and integrating math instruction across the curriculum throughout the school day. Okay, how does this happen in real time? Well, my thought is always to go to the story behind the math. And if you want more information about that, see episode 21. It was mind-blowing for me to talk about the story and understand the story behind the math, and it makes perfect sense. But really, it's more about you making a conscious effort to bring math to the forefront of your conversation every minute of every day that you possibly can and encourage your students to do the same, not only just to talk about math, but to apply their math knowledge in everyday situations. So talk about math during social studies class, like when you're studying China, for example. You can ask your students, okay, now that we know where China is on the map, how far is Beijing, China from our hometown here? And you can measure it on the actual map with a ruler, or you can put Beijing, China, and your hometown into Google Maps and figure out how far away it is in miles or in feet, or if you had to walk. I love that feature on Google Maps if I was walking or if I was riding a bike. So you can talk to your students about distance, which is a math term in social studies class. Or you could think about it in science class when you're figuring out which object is heavier. You can go one step further and ask the students, how much heavier is this one object than another? You can also ask the students, how heavy are these objects together? So when you're going through and measuring how heavy the objects are, either by putting them on a scale or by measuring them and making the scale equal with apples, how many apples this object is, how many apples is this object, whatever the case may be, you can then add on, well, how much heavier is this one? If this object is five pounds and this object is three pounds, how much heavier is 
the five-pound object and the three-pound object. That's doing math in your science class. Or you can talk about math during calendar time when you ask the students how many days there are until the weekend or how many days are there until the next school break. Anytime you can add just a small amount of math in what you're learning, it's a win, no matter where it is in the, in the school day. Even if it's just the smallest piece of math that will allow students to think that math is everywhere and it comes up all the time, that is the idea. You've hit the nail on the head. This informal methods of representing math concepts in a general environment or in everyday life before linking them to specific formal math vocabulary and the symbols that go along with it continues the learning of the math for the students and it will make their math time, their actual physical math time in the classroom, just more rich and beneficial and they'll catch on to the math concepts a lot quicker. So that's it. Five sound recommendations to be used as evidence for teaching math every day. And if you need a reason to convince yourself or someone on your team or even your administrator, I've got you covered. Here they are, those recommendations again. Recommendation number one, teach number and operations using a developmental progression. Recommendation number two, teach geometry, patterns, measurement, and data analysis using a developmental progression. Recommendation number three, use progress monitoring to ensure that math instruction builds on what each child knows. Recommendation number four, teach children to view and describe their world mathematically. And finally, recommendation number five, deliberately dedicate time each day to teaching math and integrate math instruction across the curriculum throughout the school day. So there you have it, five efficient and creative recommendations for you to consider implementing during your mathematics instruction. Whether you consider yourself a creative teacher or not, or just need a spark to re-energize your classroom atmosphere tomorrow, I hope these five recommendations will help you confidently engage your students and create an atmosphere for high-quality content, instruction, and amazing learning potential to begin. Before we part, This section of the podcast called Cut That Out is one I do every time. Here I'll give you access to a handout so you can remember the five recommendations in your math class time. You can find the handout on my website at pagehendricks.com. That's P-A-I-G-E hendricks.com along with today's show notes. so much for joining me this week. To review key takeaways from today's episode and get the free handout, please visit my website at pagehendricks.com. That's P-A-I-G-E Hendricks.com. I hope you have enjoyed this podcast and want to listen to more. Please subscribe to Get Off the Dotted Line. I can't wait to share another podcast with you. Thank you again for joining me, Dr. Paige Hendricks, in today's episode of Get Off the Dotted Line. See you next time.